Hi, and welcome back to the Teach for the Heart podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cardamus, and we're here to give you the ideas and inspiration you need to overcome your teaching challenges and make a lasting difference in your students' hearts and lives. Today, I am bringing you a special interview with Jonathan Holmes of Fieldstone Counseling. This interview was part of our Christian Educators Virtual Summit, but I could not keep it uh, confined just to that weekend because this information is so important and I think you're going to find it so helpful. We are talking about gender identity, which is such a big issue uh, right now in our society and one that, frankly, as Christians, sometimes we struggle with knowing how on earth to handle it. So in today's episode, we're going to talk about uh, how to how we should think biblically about the question of gender. And then next week, we'll be back with a more uh, like, so what episode where we go into now that we know how to think biblically, what does that look like in our day-to-day interactions? So this episode, this interview is a little longer than normal. So I am going to stop talking and jump right into it. I pray that you will find it helpful. Hi, I'm here today with Jonathan Holmes, who is the pastor of counseling at Parkside Church and the executive director of Fieldstone Counseling. Thank you so much for being Thank here. You. Thank you for having me. And we're going to talk about the question of gender identity, uh, what the Bible has to say about it, and what we are to do with that. Mm-hmm. So before we get into it, though, can you share just a little bit about your background and experience? Uh. Uh, well, I've been here at Parkside Church for about 12 years, and I started off as our pastor of counseling. And at that point, we were at uh, just this campus, and then we had a campus down in Akron and Canton, uh, Parkside Church Green. And then over time, we've continued to expand, and my role here has changed and adapted over time where I lead our counseling ministries, but others have more direct on-the-ground uh, hands-on contact with our lay counselors and uh, just with people who need care and help. Uh, and then about two years ago, uh, we launched Fieldstone Counseling, which is a counseling center that grew out of Parkside Church's uh, really desire to see unbelieving people become committed followers of Christ. And we felt that counseling was a wonderful avenue to help people who needed true hope, needed biblical hope. And so since about 2017, that's been a, a larger portion of my job. It's been so cool to see it growing, yeah. and I've heard so many yeah. stories from people that it's been so helpful for. Thank so that's, you. That's, that's, that's encouraging. It's very encouraging. <laughs> so we're going to kind of break up our talk into a couple different sections. We're going to talk first about just understanding this yeah. issue, and then we're going to talk about how do we think biblically, yeah. and then we'll dive into practical at the end. Wonderful. So let's start with just understanding the issue from kind of from a secular perspective. Yeah. What do you what do you, does the world at large? Right. How do they think about this issue? Right. And you have a full seminar that you did <laughs> that we're going to make available to people Wonderful. if they um, would like to go deeper. But in that, you talked about some various terms yeah. around gender identity, which is really helpful to yeah. help us because we really do need to understand right. where people are coming from. It helps us better relate, better empathize. We don't have time to go into all of them, but I thought maybe we could talk about a few of them. Can you share, um, how does our society use the terms biological sex Mm -hmm. and gender, and what's the difference? 
Great question. And, and to that point, I think understanding the terms and terminology is just helpful so that we're all talking about the same thing and right. just understand where we're coming from. Uh, biological sex is talking about what your gender is as it relates to your chromosomes. How are you actually physically formed and made? You know, XX or XY, uh, genitalia, reproductive organs, that's what biological sex is. And uh, biological sex, then the next term that you'd mentioned uh, was gender. And gender is the social or psychological or cultural manifestations of biological sex, uh, of masculinity or femininity, so that in culture there are certain ways that maleness and femaleness are expressed. Mm -hmm. uh, gender identity uh, is how that femaleness or that masculinity is expressed in terms of how you view yourself. You know, do you view yourself as male or female? And historically, for I would say probably for a, a very large portion of history, gender identity was tied to biological sex. So if you were born a boy, then the way that you identified was as a boy. Right. If you were born a girl, then you identified as a girl or your gender identity was a girl. And, you know, I think recently uh, that has that connection really has broken where biological sex and gender identity are not connected. So someone might be born male, but might identify as a female, even though their biological sex is male. And for people who are on that spectrum uh, and who want to make that transition uh, away from their biological sex, that would be the word transgender or the term transgender, which is a, a little bit of a broad umbrella term um, to describe that population. Okay, so you're saying that uh, biological sex is fixed, but yes. our society has recently come up with a kind of viewing it yeah. as gender isn't necessarily the same as your biological exactly. sex. They're two, it's, it's kind of two different things as exactly. the new philosophy. Exactly. For, I would say, again, for most of us, those three things of biological sex, gender, and gender identity all line up. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes in, in culture or in news articles or in media, you might hear the term cisgender. And cisgender is describing someone whose biological sex, gender, and gender identity all line up together. Uh, so for, again, a large majority of people, they would be considered cisgender because all three of those things line up. For transgender individuals, they don't. Their biological sex and their gender identity are not corresponding uh, to one another. Okay, so this is really helpful in defining yeah. these terms. One <laughs> other one, um, what is gender dysphoria? Yeah, it's a great question. Gender dysphoria is the experience of uh, dissonance of, of dysphoria between one's biological sex and how one identifies. So somebody who's born male, with male anatomy, male chromosomes, but who identifies as female. And it's that, that um, maybe that tension that a person feels uh, that is gender dysphoria. Uh, the, actual, uh, the actual way that it's described in the DSM-5 is that it's a marked season of distress lasting up to six months. So it's not just like somebody wakes up and is like, oh, I feel like I'm a girl today when they're <laughs> biologically born male. Um, but it's someone who actually has a marked season or state of distress that lasts uh, for a significant chunk of time. Okay, so someone's struggling with gender dysphoria. Yes. They're having these questions. They're not yes. necessarily, they're just wrestling with the question. Exactly. Okay. They're wrestling with the question in a really consistent way over a period of time. It's not just like on one day you wake up and you're like, oh, I, I feel a little off today. I feel like more, more male or more female. And then the next day you're not. Okay. It, it's marked by a, a season of distress. Okay. Well, that's really helpful just yeah. understanding when these terms come yes. up, what they mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about um, the importance of 
if we have a transgender student or a colleague in our classes about actually getting to know them and their stories? How does that play in? I think that understanding people's stories and understanding who they are is so important before we ever start using labels or terms, you know. You and I wouldn't want that to happen to us if we were in conversation. You know, there might be a lot of things that people might label us with, but at the end of the day, we want people to get to know Linda or people to get to know Jonathan. And so one of the things that we aim to do is we aim to, to... to learn more about the actual person in front of us, uh, asking them questions about who they are, uh, what do they enjoy, what are their interests, what are their likes, their dislikes. And I think that a lot of times uh, in conversations like that, it actually can humanize the individual instead of just them being, um, you know, a conglomerate of what we've known about transgender people from the media or maybe even a stereotype of what we think transgender people are. We actually can get to know that you know, for a lot of people who struggle either with gender dysphoria or who identify as transgender, that they're human beings made in the image of God. And if we ever want to help, we, you're right, we have to know them. Yes. We can't just yes. be right. applying yeah. artificial rules to the situation. Absolutely. That makes sense. a lot of sense. Can you share, in your seminar, you shared a little bit about some of the concerns that the experts are having. So in our society, it does seem like there's some disagreement. Can you yeah. share a little bit about... Um, the way the Amer- what the American College of Pediatrics is yeah. saying about yeah. um, is particularly gender dysphoria in young children. Right. I think they actually do have some concerns. Is that, they is that do. True? They do have concerns. And so one of the concerns is that uh, for most children, gender or some sense of gender identity, so understanding who you are as a person, how you identify, tied to your biological sex, uh, that develops anywhere between ages two and six and seven. There's a little bit of a spectrum. And some of the concern now is that children as young as two or three or four are maybe at times expressing that their gender identity is different than their biological sex. And I think because of the culture and the dynamic that we're in right now, parents, well-meaning parents, many of them kind of hop on that and they hear that and they think, oh, maybe maybe you've got gender dysphoria or maybe you are transgender or you're trapped in the wrong body. And what can happen is they can begin uh, helping that child uh, or really putting that child on a particular track towards changing their actual gender, their biological sex, through uh, hormone therapy, through other means, maybe through clothing, uh, changing their name, pronouns, etc., at a really, really early age. And, you know, you and I both have kids. You know, our kids are fairly fickle at times. You know, one day they like hot dogs, the next day they want mac and cheese. All that to say... uh, Kids aren't always the best, they're not always the best arbiters of their own desires and what's going on inside. And so some of the concern is, are we intervening too early? Mm -hmm. Are we intervening too early in making decisions that are going to have lifelong implications for their health, their emotional well-being, when a lot of those problems would probably resolve themselves uh, just over time as the child grows up and matures? And one of those organizations that is raising just some concerns about that is the American College of Pediatricians. And they're, I would definitely say, a minority voice within the larger medical community. But they're saying, hey, we're, we're doing these medical interventions, maybe even doing some gender reconstructive surgeries on children and teens at really early ages when uh, we don't really know the full implications of what we're doing. And we would probably urge a little bit of caution in that. Um, 
In addition to that, if that being the medical side, there's also just been some natural observation that there's a little bit of trendiness attached with this topic as well. And so in a school setting, maybe in middle school or late elementary, uh, that there's uh, an opportunity where a lot of people are talking about it and it's not necessarily a way to get attention, but that it definitely brings a little bit of mm -hmm. attention. And uh, so sometimes I think some of the phenomena that we see, especially among uh, teens or young adolescents, I think might be attributed to that. And there's been you know, several psychologists and therapists who have observed that and noted that. Yeah, I think that's really helpful for us as teachers yeah. to understand. And hopefully we can link to some of these, yes. these articles and resources because... Yes. Um, especially in public schools, if you're speaking yeah. into people's lives, we're going to talk about the whole biblical aspect here in right. a minute. But when all when you're speaking to someone, there are some secular arguments that can be yes. made for caution, there for are. slowing down a there, little bit. There are. And in in, in Linda, I'm so glad you said that because I think sometimes Christians might feel like they're a little bit of a voice in the wilderness that we're over here saying, you know, hey, there's there's some concerns with how this squares up against biblical teaching. But even non-Christians uh, in the therapeutic community, in education, in pediatrics, etc., uh, are also raising some concerns too and are saying, listen, I think that we need to, to slow the process down a little bit. Let's see if some of these issues resolve themselves just over time or just as the child matures. And some of those voices sometimes don't get amplified or heard in the right. media. Um, but there is a group of people who I do think share some of our concerns. Great. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's, that's really helpful. So that's just a small bit. And you go into yeah. it way more in your seminar. We're going to have yeah. that available if people want to Wonderful. kind of dive into that a little bit more. But for now, let's move on and talk a little bit about thinking biblically about yeah. this issue. And um, we know that it's helpful when you're trying to look at a topic from a biblical worldview to kind of take it through the framework, yeah. creation, the fall, redemption, yeah. glory. Um Let's walk through that. Too. Yeah. You know, I always start off with a little story. You know, one of you know my kids, I have four girls. Uh, they love Disney movies, and we watch The Little Mermaid quite a bit. And uh, early on in the movie, you know, Ariel, who's collected all these little things from the mainland, from human beings, uh, you know, she's found these forks, and she's kind of kept them as treasures. And she asked the seagull, you know, she says, hey, what are, what are these? What are these forks? And uh, you remember the seagull says, oh, they're called dingle hoppers, and they're used to brush your hair. And so she really, her entire life, her entire upbringing thinks the forks are to brush your hair. And, you know, we know how the movie goes. She's, she's at dinner, you know, after she's become human, and she's at dinner with Prince. Eric and she sees the fork at the dinner table she starts to brush her hair with it everybody's like what are you doing right that's so odd and the, the 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 meaning then behind that story is that if we want to know what that fork's design is for we have to ask the person who created it right you might say well I think forks make great brushes yeah. but probably the person who invented the fork is saying it might be a good hairbrush but that's not what I made it for right. that's not what I designed it for so when we talk about gender, we have to start with scripture. We have to start with the person who actually created and designed not only creation, but actually human beings themselves. And I think sometimes we forget about that or it becomes maybe so familiar to us that we kind of brush past Genesis 1 and 2 and uh, we don't think about the implications as it relates to our gender. But one of the things that we talk about in that first movement of the story of creation is that 
not only is God creating a complementarity between male and female, but really the entire movement of creation is that he is creating a complementarity uh, between land and sea, mm. between the waters above and the waters below, between things that remain in the sea and animals on land. And so it makes sense that male and female actually aren't that different from the actual rhythm of creation, that there's something about difference that there's something about having a binary of something that's very different from something over here that actually testifies to God's glory and I think really the intelligence of his design. And so when God creates Adam, he doesn't just create another Adam, right? That there's something different about Eve, not just in the fact that that she's a helpmate or that she's a woman, but in the fact that she's actually different than him at a very biological level. And that the union of those two things actually is a signpost to God's glory. And so when you think about gender, I tell people gender is a gift. Gender Mm -hmm. is a good thing. Uh, Gender is not something that we have to be embarrassed about or that we have to be ashamed of. It's actually a way that God designed and created and gifted to us uh, that we can actually display his glory, which I think is a a really wonderful thing to think about. Um, you, You move a little bit closer in the story to Genesis 3 and you realize that one of the very first things that happens with Adam and Eve as a result of their sinful uh, decisions is there's deep shame about their bodies, Mm. right? Genesis 2 is they're standing before each other naked and unashamed. In Genesis 3 comes, they are naked and ashamed. And, you know, they're going out and, you know, shopping for fig leaves to (laughs) to put together a little bit of an outfit. There's this sense where I can't really fully disclose who I am. There's something embarrassing about my body. And so it makes sense to us that one of the ways that the fall affects us is that we have a disordered and a distorted view of our, what? Our Mm. bodies. And so as you kind of trace that and and move it forward into just our current time period, it it makes a little bit of sense of why some people might struggle with gender dysphoria. You know, you and I might not have ever had some of those feelings of dysphoria where we've ever wondered of whether or not our gender identity is the same as our biological sex. But for those people who do genuinely struggle with that, I actually think the Bible provides a framework to understand that problem. Why it's happening. Why yeah. it's happening, right? They're not they're not freaks, they're not weird, something's not going off that's just really unusual. It's just I think it's a practical manifestation that we live in a broken world with broken people with broken bodies. So that's creation, fall. So you're you're shuttling forward mm-hmm. ahead and you're you're asking the question, not only the existential question of what can heal this this relationship that's been broken between God and man, but then what do we do with our bodies too? You know, how do we how do we actually address that issue? And so when Christ comes on the scene in the Gospels and we see him, uh, you know, John one fourteen says that he comes in flesh and he makes his dwelling with us. Uh, he doesn't come just as a spirit being. He doesn't kind of phone redemption and you know from on high. He actually comes as a baby as a biologically born male and he comes and he lives life as a biologically born male and again that's something that we maybe just cross over too quickly because we can uh, overemphasize maybe his deity you know in 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 christ but there's a, a striking humanity that we see in the gospel of john in particular there in that first chapter that's really instructive with what do we do with our bodies and i think what christ teaches us Uh, in his incarnation is the priority of the body, that the body is important and that there's actually a plan uh, for the body. Is it good? Is it just a tomb? Is it just a shell Mm -hmm. that that really just keeps the good parts of us kind of hemmed in? 
And so we see uh, when Jesus comes and he inaugurates this story of redemption uh, that he gives himself for us and that, that a part of that giving himself for us includes not only the redemption of our souls, but the redemption of our bodies as well. And I think the resurrection shows us that, you know, in just vivid detail. Yeah. Um, so all of that to say, I think when you get to that third part of the story, uh, our, our, our scriptures and, and Jesus really help hone in and show us just how important both body and soul are really in the broad story of redemption. Right. So, so we're saying, backing up, we're in creation, God designed gender. Yeah. It's part yes. of his creation it's design. Of... It's not just, it's not just a social construct. Yeah. And it's not an afterthought. Yeah. yeah. It, it was purposeful, but the fall messed with that. Yes. And so that's why we do have these questions right. And, right. And, and people, these are genuine questions. Some people have, they're not yes. made up. They're right. real. There's real brokenness. Yes. Um, but Jesus came and yeah. the redemption offered is both spiritual yes. and for the body. Yes. And he took human form. So yes. the body does have value. Yeah. The body does have value. And then the last piece would be the consummation or the future glory. Right. What does that teach us? Yeah, you trace that storyline, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, and the good news about Scripture is that it does tell us how things are going to end. It doesn't leave us hanging, right? You don't have to <laughs> wait a few years for that last part of the novel to come out. Uh, and consummation actually is really instructive because it tells us what's really important, what's really going to last. And what it tells us is that we are going to be both body and soul worshiping God forever as physically embodied beings. Um, I remember growing up in Sunday school, I think I thought heaven was just us maybe kind of floating like with angel wings on clouds, playing harps. And uh, that's just definitely not a vision that we see from Revelation. Right. What we see in Revelation is just, I think, normal life situated around uh, the, the, the perfect worship of God. And so in Revelation 7, you see people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation singing, which is going to take a body, uh, worshiping God. And I think that's instructive for us because it says that there is an importance and a priority with both body and soul. And Paul actually picks that thought up in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where he's talking about, hey, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, in ancient Near Eastern times, especially in a first century context for Paul, that would have been pretty radical because there was a dominant philosophy that was pretty, pretty pervasive in Paul's time called Gnosticism, which basically said the body is really not that great. It's kind of a tomb that keeps the best parts of you, i.e. your heart or your soul, kind of in case. But the body's really not that great. You're just, you know, you're going to go back to ashes and kind of sink into the ground. And Gnosticism really devalued the body. And so for Paul to say, no, your body's actually important. And what you do with your body is important. There's actually a way that you conduct yourself that actually brings honor and glory to God with your body. That would have been pretty radical yeah. in first century Rome. And so that line in 1 Corinthians 6 where he says, therefore glorify God with your body. You know, he doesn't say therefore glorify God with your soul. He says with your body. And that's great news for you and I that even as broken individuals in the process of being redeemed, that the way that we use our bodies actually can glorify God. Something as simple, Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 10.31, he says, whether therefore you eat or drink, do all of the glory of God. Mm -hmm. Something as simple as how we eat and drink as physically embodied beings can bring glory to God. So those two last components of the story, both redemption and consummation, I think tell us, um, listen, the, the body is important and there's a future plan for it. And your body actually has a purpose. It's to glorify God, mm -hmm. not to just do whatever you want it to. And that's one of the dangers, I think, that 
we get into with just the current situation as it relates to gender dysphoria and gender identity is the body becomes more about us. Mm, and what, what makes we me feel, happy. Exactly. What makes you feel really you or what makes you feel good and conform your body to it rather than conforming your body to the image of God and what he desires for you. Right. It's just a radically different yes, way it's a of radically looking different at it. Way. It really reorients your gaze. And so uh, for people who maybe don't come from uh, a background of faith or from a biblical background, you can understand how difficult or how foreign that sounds, you know. Right. We don't want anybody telling us that you don't get to do whatever you want to with your body. You own your own body is what culture mm -hmm. would teach us. And scripture would say, no, you were bought with a price. You know? Yeah. And so glorify God with your body. And it's just, I think it's so important for us as Christians to just understand that, yeah. just kind of have that in our minds. And, and we'll get into the more practical later, yeah. but you know, when we're having conversations with students or yeah. administrators or colleagues, um, they might, we understand that they might not, not get that. If, right. they're, if, they, exactly. if they're not a Christian, they're not going to get that. But we, but we can understand that, especially, yes. you know, that, that, that is the design. Right. You know, whether they realize it or not, that, it is that's what design. was intended. Right. It is a design. And I think, to some degree, I think a little bit of that desire is hardwired into us that we realize that there's got to be something outside of us that we're living for. And I think that provides a little bit of the breakdown that we see now of to live only for ourselves. For a lot of people, actually, in the end, at the end of the day, isn't that fulfilling? Right. You, you realize, man, I think I'm actually built for something more than just me being happy. And I think that if educators and, and people that are in positions of influence in schools and whatnot can maybe tap into that and just access that and recognize that it's a helpful, it's a helpful bridge builder. Yeah, that, that's great. So you talk in your seminar about some different ways that secular society has found identity. Yes. And you, can you talk a little bit about that and the right. difference between traditional yes. identity and modern identity? Right. right. You know, you really can't have a conversation about gender identity without first talking about identity and understanding how all of us come to a sense of really just who we are and why we're here. And for a vast majority of time, I'd probably say really up till maybe the 15th, 16th century, uh, the way that identity was formed was what was called traditional identity. You know, you were born into a family and you did whatever your family did. You know, you, you, you were born into a family of farmers, well then guess what? You're gonna be a farmer. Right. And uh, if you wanted to go off and be a baker, you could, but that's probably gonna be pretty frowned on. You know, you just do whatever your family, your clan, your tribe does. And the goal in traditional identity is you want to get the honor or the approval of someone outside of you, okay. namely your parents, or even really somebody in a position of power. Like you want the clan to approve of you. You want your tribe or a king to approve of you. Um, you begin to see a little bit of a shift in that where uh, modern identity comes onto the scene right around the 15th, 16th century where, you know, they actually don't have the authority to be able to tell you who you are. You get to say who you are. And so modern identity became very self-made of, listen, I do and I get to say who I am and what I get to do. And now an outside authority is not telling me or approving of me, but I get to. Mm -hmm. I get to say, this is who I am. I approve of it. And now a little bit of a reversal happens. I now come to society and say, now you have to approve of me, mm. not vice versa. And so for many of us generationally, maybe our parents' generation or our grandparents' generation grew up with more of a sense of traditional identity of the high school is honor. You want to do something that brings your family honor. 
and maybe younger generations, Gen Z, millennials, uh, are definitely growing up in a in a generation where millennial or not where millennial, but where modern identity is much more prevalent. Um, but there there are some significant drawbacks to modern identity, though. That you know, once you begin to press into it, you begin to realize it's not the most stable like what? Uh, form. Uh, you know, one of the things about modern identity is that it's not really a tenable way to build out a sense of who you are because sooner or later uh, you're going to run into some problems. So, for example, if I said, you know what, my identity is I'm a kleptomaniac. I just love to steal things. And that just really makes me happy. That gives me a sense of just true, you know, just a real rush of like pleasure and happiness. Uh, and like, let's say I come over to your house and I steal something, one of your belongings. Well, you, t- well, you can't do that. But in a modern identity, you have no authority to be able to tell me that I'm wrong mm. or that what I'm doing is not right because I'm telling you, listen, this is who right. I am. You have to affirm that. You have to approve of that. And so it's a little bit of a silly example. <laughs> but you see, though, where that breaks down over time, right? Mm-hmm. If you get to be whoever you want and I get to be whoever I want, what happens when those two things come up into tension with one another? Right. And so what you realize is that in traditional identity where the highest good is honor or approval, modern identity, the highest good would be happiness. You know, you get to be whoever you are. That that's not really realistic. You know, there are going to be times when you really aren't that happy with who you are. And if you're the sole person responsible for that, it, it creates a feedback loop that, that at, the, at the end of the day just is not sustainable. Yeah. So is the answer then traditional identity? Right, yeah. The answer, and it's a good question because some, you know, some of uh, your listeners or some of your audience might think, well, yeah, modern identity is bad. It's really this traditional identity. But traditional identity has some problems with it too. Um, and so we're not looking for traditional identity or even a modern identity, but we're looking for a gospel identity. We're looking for someone even better than our parents. We're looking for somebody even better than a king or a tribe or a clan who actually knows who we are knows what our purpose was and gives us a new sense of who we are that's stable and that's consistent and that's not affected by the changing times of our culture or even our feelings. And that I really think is the beauty and the benefit of a gospel identity is that we get an identity that is received and not achieved. And uh, a well-known pastor and author, Tim Keller, that's one of the lines that he says often in his seminars is that gospel identity is received and not achieved. In both traditional and in modern identity, there's some type of thing that you need to do Mm -hmm. or accomplish or achieve to get a sense of who you are. In gospel identity, God says, no, this is who you are. Now go live like it. And that brings a, a huge sense of freedom. Yeah. It brings a huge sense of just uh, being fully loved and fully known and then acting and living out of that identity, that stable sense of who you are. Can you share just, I know we could, this is like a whole topic yeah. in itself, but just a little bit about what does that gospel identity look like? Right. What does that gospel identity look like? It's a, it's a good question. You know, a lot of books can sell about living a gospel-centered <laughs> life or, you know, have the gospel as the focus. You know, maybe... Here's one way that we could maybe articulate or tease that out is what would it look like every day to wake up with a sense knowing that you are fully known and fully loved by God? Yeah. What would that look like? You know, let's say in an interaction with a with a coworker that maybe you're afraid of or fearful of. Maybe they're hostile or harsh or you just don't get along with him. 
having a gospel identity allows you to move towards that person without fear of what they're going to think about you, ultimately, because they're not the arbiter of who you are. Are you a good person? Are you a likable person? Because you already have a stable identity that's received from God himself. So it allows you to move towards people who aren't like you, who are difficult for you, with a sense of freedom and love. You know, that, that might yeah. be one way that that type yeah. of gospel identity gets worked That's out. That's super helpful. Like, I, you don't, I don't need that approval because yeah. I right. I know who I right. am. I know how right. God sees right. me. And that's what's most right. important. Yeah. That's awesome. Exactly. Can we try to apply this for just a minute with, what would this look like? Let's say we have a Christian who's struggling yeah. with gender dysphoria. Yeah. Okay, so they're yes. a Christian. They do believe. Uh, they believe in God. They have accepted Christ. Yes. And they're struggling with this. How would it look like? What would it look like for them to think about their gender dysphoria and their struggle with this yeah. through the lens of gospel identity? Yeah. Such a good question. And and to that point, Linda, I think that there is a large number of people like that mm-hmm. in our churches, in our Christian schools, in our neighborhoods, uh, teenagers, adolescents, adults who hold to a biblical and scriptural teaching on God, you know, humanity, etc., but who internally are sensing some type of gender dysphoria. There's a a level of discomfort or dissonance with their biological sex and how they identify. Mm -hmm. And so how do we understand that? Well, one of the things that I think that we help with, uh, Dr. Julie Slattery, who's written a lot on just sexuality in general, she has a term that I really like. She calls it sexual discipleship. She says, our culture does a lot of sexual discipleship, but not in a helpful direction. Mm -hmm. And, As Christians, we've not done a good job of just biblical sexual discipleship, discipleship just being training and and, and really forming the person. And I think that for someone who is struggling, like you mentioned, there's there's a need for discipleship and friendship and counsel there that says, listen, tell me a little bit more about what you're going through. I want to hear your story. I want to know what you're going through. But I also want to hold out for you a compelling and a beautiful vision for who Christ is, uh, for what Christ has to say about our bodies and about gender, and how do we reconcile those two things together. And at the end of the day, if we're approaching it from a biblical framework, we know that Christ is calling us to a life of of discipleship, a life of self-denial, but also a life of grace, Mm. a a life of grace uh, for difficult things and for difficult journeys. And, And also a Savior who understands our weaknesses and who understands our our hardships and our difficulties. And so rather than ostracizing people like that or saying, you know, hey, we can't help you or just, you know, suck it up, just do what you know you need to do. I think that there's a component of counsel, friendship, and discipleship that I think is just really sorely needed in settings like that. Yeah, and that was, I think that was really important, that first thing you said about getting, coming alongside, getting to know someone, right? Because we're not really able to speak that until we really understand where they're coming from, how they're feeling, right. Right. and then we can, you know, help, help right. address it as, as we're able to, right. or as they want that input. And, and sometimes what can happen is when we don't know a person's story is we can misapply information mm. that we know from the Bible. So we might say a very true thing, but it might not be the wisest and best thing at the moment. You know, an example of that might be, you know, Eli sees, you know, Hannah in First Samuel 1, and she's kind of like just muttering to herself, and, you know, there's been a lot of drinking going around, and, and she thinks that, he thinks that she's drunk, you know, says, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you've drank a little too much, you know. So he takes external data, he sees something, 
and he makes an unhelpful assumption and an unhelpful conclusion. Right. And you're right. When we don't really take time to get to know people and come alongside them, sometimes we might do that. You know, we might see a transgender person out in public, or we might see somebody in a small group and they might share a prayer request about their gender dysphoria. And without getting to know the person, we might make assumptions about them, their story, their struggles, their background, without really getting to know them. And in that way, we really misapply scripture and its teaching in unhelpful ways. Yeah, it makes so much sense. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into, in the next session, we're going to get into way more of what it actually looks like to walk yes. this out um, with colleagues, with students, you know, and all these things. But um, thank you so much for thank helping you. us think about this from a biblical perspective. Wonderful. I hope you guys enjoyed this conversation with Jonathan and that you'll come back next week to hear part two, where we're going to dive into what do we actually do with this? How should we interact with both truth and love? If you'd like any of the resources or notes that we've mentioned, you can head over to teachfortheheart.com slash gender one, teachfortheheart.com slash gender one, the number one, because this is part one where we're talking about gender. We'll also link to Jonathan's full seminar that he does on gender identity if you want to check that out, as well as some other resources that you will find helpful. Uh, thank you guys so much for being here. Um, let me pause and pray with us before we close. Father, thank you so much for your word and that it provides us with so many insights. I pray that you will help each teacher as we're thinking through these things. Help us to think the way you would have us think, to think biblically, and to have your mind on these areas. Give us wisdom as we interact, that we would be a help and not a hindrance, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you guys again so much. I look forward to speaking with you again soon. In the meantime, keep growing, keep striving. You really are making a difference.